seated. And as you're seated, uh, turn in your Bible to the book of John, John chapter 8. John chapter 8, we'll focus today on verses 56 through 59. John chapter 8, 56 through 59. We're going to start a, a new sermon series and, and through what's called the I Am Statements of Jesus. I was thinking I'd maybe call it Jesus in his own words. Because what we'll see in what we talk about the I am statements of Jesus, that there are seven different ways, seven different ways inside of the book of John that Jesus identifies himself. It's a good thing when somebody tells us who they are or what they're like, uh, that we should listen to them, that we should pay attention to them. You know, they're revealing something about themselves. And that's especially true if it's somebody about, if it's Jesus who's doing that. One of my motivations for doing this was, what are you just saying about? Right, what are they, are they saying? They're saying, beautiful Savior, beautiful Jesus. They said, they're saying, Jesus shines brighter, fairer. Brighter and fairer than anything that earth can boast, that heaven can boast. Uh, Jesus is that brightest, most fair, most beautiful um, object person of our affection. And so just to spend some time listening to how he talks about himself, how he talks about his own identity. I want to talk a bit about identity, too, because when Jesus says, I am, he is identifying himself, isn't he? He's telling us who he is. I would ask you, as you think, as you kind of prepare your heart to hear this, is, is ask yourself, who are you? And how would you describe your identity? You might even, if you have a pen and paper out, you might write down some things which are true of you. What are true of your identity? If you had a sticker that said, hello, um, I am, and then what would you write on that? You might write your name, of course. It's how you know yourself. It's how people know you. And, but we want to look at more than that. You can think of the relationships that identify you. A father or mother. This is my father, this is my mother, somebody might introduce you, or maybe a son and a daughter, a brother or sister, a husband or a wife. You know, these are, uh, th these are ways that shape our understanding of the world, our life in the world. It's how other people understand us as well. It's a part of our identity. You could think of the commitments that you have. Maybe think through some of those in your identity. I'm, I'm a Christian. Maybe say I'm an atheist. I'm a Presbyterian, I'm a Baptist, I'm a liberal, I'm a conservative, I'm a teacher, or I'm an engineer. You know, what are those commitments that we have? Because our beliefs, they, they certainly shape us. The churches that we're members of, I mean, those are ways that others at least think about us and we might think of ourselves. The kind of, the way, the kind of work that we do shapes us as well. You know, me, I'm, I'm an engineer. Over the last few weeks, a couple things have come up, and they said, you really think like an engineer. Now, I'm a pastor now, but I'm reminded, you really do think like an engineer, Sean. And, and I said, I can't help it. I mean, <laughs> they've identified me, right? Even if I want to move past that. We don't like to be pigeonholed into an identity, but, you know, we know that there are some objective realities that shape us. You know, I'm an American. I'm a Virginian. You know, those shape us, especially when you think about other nations and how they might think of, of, of us or you. 
And there may be other ways that we may have been labeled or maybe even ways that, that we have labeled ourselves. I'll mostly use negative ones here because we can see how they're so influential. I'm ugly. I'm good for nothing. Or maybe I'm only good for one thing. I'm unwanted, unforgivable, stupid. Or maybe you were labeled as better than everyone else, smarter or richer. You know, labels of identity are extremely powerful, whether they're objective or, or subjective, because they have a shaping influence on us, either by others, they think of us, or as we think about ourselves. That's why we need to think about that. We need, we need to think about the right ones, especially as we think about and understand ourselves, because how we understand ourselves and our identity is going to shape us. There, there are two big questions that will steer our lives. The first question is, who is God? And the second question is, who am I? Those really two questions do uh, shape our lives. Um, they shape the directions that we make about every area of life. And here's the thing, if you get the first one wrong, the one of who is God, it's, it's inevitable that you're going to get the second one wrong as well. I mean, these are the questions that people ask all throughout history. There's a whole branch of philosophy, existentialism, which is attempting to answer that question. Who am I? So ask again, who, who are you? That's because today people don't know who they are. We're told we can define our own identity. We can create ourselves. You know, it's almost typified by the idea that Facebook allowed users to choose um, gender identities as male or female or anything else that they want. It was once that you could choose up to 50 different options. Now it's just fill in the blank with whatever you want to put in there. Who are you? Well, I'm going to define it myself. You know, the world says you can, do, you can be whatever you want to be. You just need to discover yourself and, and don't let others define you. Almost taken to ridiculous levels. Women who can call themselves men, men who can call themselves women, humans can call themselves God. All ways of identification, self-identification. And here's the thing, that any self-provided identity will fail to carry the weight that's necessary to really give life meaning. I mean, defining ourselves uh, fails to see ourselves in light of, of others. It fails to see our, ourselves in light of, of God, and it, and it fails to see the connections and responsibilities that come along with our real identity. And if we lose God, we suffer our own loss of identity, because once we lose God and are rooting in him as his creation, we lose something of ourselves. Once a person gives up on God, they give up the ability to ground personal identity other than something they made up for themselves. How we identify ourselves will shape us. If a person says, I am autonomous, in other words, if I'm under no one's rules, well, they're going to live without rules. If a person says, I am an evolutionary accident, they're going to live like an accident based on instinct and passion. If a person says, I am a god, they are going to live like they are the boss of themselves and others. If a person says, I am rich, they'll probably spend freely. I am poor, they will see the limitations more than possibilities. If I am unlovable, they'll probably fail to receive God's love, others' love, or even have much love to show others. But here's the thing we want to see as we look in the scriptures is how identity is received. It's received as a gift that comes from God. Identity is received as we forge different relationships, especially as a relationship with God. 
Again, as a husband, as a brother, as a father. And with each of those come responsibilities. I have responsibilities as, as a member of this nation. And is ultimately is created by God, created in his image, and redeemed by him for his glory. That comes with certain responsibilities as it comes with identity. I asked a question myself just this morning, would this make us more content as a people? If we saw who, you know, identity and seeing that identity is something that comes from God. Isn't some of our, our discontent that we have, like, I don't like where I'm at. I don't like this. And instead of receiving it as a gift, as part of uh, what God has done, what God is doing, um, there's a discontent that can go along with it. Wouldn't we be happier if we see, saw and received it as coming from the hand of God? but also receiving what he says in truth. So identity is not something that's self-created, it's something that comes from God. It doesn't uh, come from a human person. A person might curse you, a person might generalize you, a person might label you, might name you, but they cannot truthfully define you because our identity is part of God's good and wise and sovereign plan. It really ultimately comes from his word. His word as creator and his word as redeemer. He not only speaks inside the Bible as we read that, but we realize he speaks in all creation and, and, and even in our biology. And so when he speaks, what do we do? We, we receive. We receive our, our identity in light of what God says about us. Of course, we discover things about ourselves, but we discover those things. We don't create them. And we discover them in light of what God has created and what God has revealed, right? We don't make an identity for ourselves of what God has spoken so identity matters, and what we're going to do over the next few weeks, and this is all by way of introduction, I, I'm getting my text here in just a minute, identity matters, and what we're going to do over the next few weeks is to see the identity of Jesus and how that shapes our identity. Who is Jesus, and how does that affect us? Now, when it comes to identity, we believe that Jesus was the only person on the planet who really, truly understood himself perfectly. He's the, one who, the only one who ever truly understood himself perfectly. He's also the person who can lead us into a better or more proper understanding of who we are. And so when we receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, you know, we begin to understand better of, of who we are. We find our identity in him. For all the books that have been written on, on the topic of personal identity, the one that we need to read most is the one about the identity of Jesus Christ. And that's what leads us into the seven I am statements describe who he is. Now today's an introduction, and what I want to do is to show why these I am statements, the seven I am statements of Jesus, I am something, why they are so important. Interestingly, today is not one of the I am, seven I am statements. We'll look at why. Um, we'll look at in the passage here. Um, but it's really kind of an overview of, of understanding what he's really saying in every other one of those I am statements. And this passage gives us something critically important, the background of every other one of those. All right, so now we're going to get to our text. John chapter 8, verse 56 through 59. So would you please stand for the reading of God's word? John 8, starting in verse 56, it says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. 
This is God's word. The flowers fade, the grass withers, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. All right, so let's look at these, these verses that are here. Starting in verse 56, we see Jesus as speaking of himself as very familiar with Abraham. He's saying that basically Abraham's dreams and visions of the future were being fulfilled by his coming. Verse 56 says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. The religious leaders of his day, they heard him. And, but they're challenged by this because Abraham has been dead for 2,000 years when Jesus said this. And so how would Jesus know what would make Abraham happy? And so that's what they say basically if we look at verse 57 and challenging him. The Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and have you seen Abraham? I mean, I, I think they know that, you know, in their assumptions, certainly he wasn't alive then. I think they're sneering a bit at him, saying, you know, what do you know about Abraham, young man? We're older than you. We've studied him more than you. You haven't even gone to rabbi school. We can tell you about him and trust us. He would have very little interest in you. What do you know about Abraham anyway? But then verse 58, Jesus gives a punchline, basically saying, well, I know more about it than you think. He says this, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. It's as if Jesus says to them, I'll tell you why to believe in me. I know. I know what would please him. In fact, I was there when Abraham was alive. No. I was there even before Abraham was alive. It's even greater than that. I was the one who put Abraham there. So how does he do that? By saying, before Abraham was, I am. I am what, right? It's like fill in the blank. I, I am what, Jesus? What are you? He's leaving out that third part of the sentence. He's living out, leaving out that object of the sentence. Shouldn't there be a noun or an adjective afterwards to say, I am this? Seems so incomplete, right? Or grandma Nazis or something. But he leaves it that way on purpose. And he does it to show two things. Well, to show one great thing. But he shows two things in this. First of all, he shows that he's eternal. He was there. He's been there. He's always been there. But it really feeds into the greater one. And to show that he's God. It's a showing the declaration that he is God. And it reveals it so that, so that they won't miss it. The Jewish leaders understand what he's saying. Because look at verse 59, what they do. They pick up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Why do they pick up stones? Because in their minds, Jesus had just blasphemed. He just said he was God, and, and they don't believe him, and he needs to be stopped. It was blasphemy, and their law did not allow that, and their job was to drive him out and maybe to kill him. And so what we're going to do today is dive, dive in this statement. Let's look at the Old Testament background of how it affects us. So we look at God's identity, Jesus' identity, and then our identity. First, let's look at God's identity. So we look at the background to this verse, starting in Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. And the amazing thing we see as we look at this is that God identifies himself with the name. Exodus, the second book of the Bible, right there at the beginning, we see this time that, that, that God spoke of himself. It's the story of Moses and the burning bush. Moses was a displaced Hebrew. His people were slaves in Egypt. He had escaped in preservation of his own life. He'd been a shepherd for a number of years, and he was tending his flock out in the desert when he sees a burning bush in the desert. 
He's curious about the bush because it's just not burning up. It's unexpected. And so he goes to that burning bush and God speaks to him out of the burning bush. God makes an appearance there. And, and to make this long story short, God told Abraham that he intended to use Moses to deliver Abraham out of slavery in Egypt. Moses was going to be the one that was going to say, You're, we're setting you free, Israel. We're setting you free from Egypt. You no longer need to be slaves. And he's going to go talk to Pharaoh and say, in the name of God, let my people go. And Moses, he looks at himself and says, I'm just a shepherd out here in the wilderness. Who, me? You know, no one's going to believe me. And so in verse 13, we see this important interaction begin between God and Moses. Verse 13, God says to Moses, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to, to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? There's been a, there's a, God seems so distant to them. Maybe, maybe it's a test, but you know, who is it that I say has come to them? Who, who, who indeed should he say? And then we look at how God answers. And God gives Moses a name. God says to Moses, verse 14, I am who I am. And he said, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. You know, see what God does, he, he gives his name. And it is, as he gives a name, he, he describes what he's like. Names do that, right? We, we name things after what they look like, like balanced rock. It's a rock that's balanced on a little perch. You know, we, we name things after what they're like. And, and, and God, in, in giving his name, describes what he is like. And here we see that he is the God who exists. He's the God who has been and will always be. We know some of his other names, Elohim, name of God, God the creator. El Shaddai, almighty God. There is no other God who is the power of him in the world. There are all other false gods. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. But the most common name that we see in the Bible for God is, is the name Lord. You can see it if you look there in verse 15, capital L-O-O-R-D. Remember, this is not just a title, but it's a personal name. When God took a name for himself, he took this sacred name Yahweh, the Tetragrammaton. And that's a derivative of, of the word the Hebrew word for I am. Verse 15, Exodus 3.15, God said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, the Lord, that's that sacred name, Yahweh or Jehovah, as, as some use it, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I'm to be remembered throughout all generations. His name I am. Every time we see the Bible use that capital O, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, all in capital letters like in verse 15, it's a reminder of the great I am, the one who is eternally existent. What does this tell us about God? It tells us that he's sovereign. It tells us that he's self-existent. It reminds us that he doesn't need us, but that we need him. It reminds us that he is the Lord. There's one thing we can say about God, we need to say about God, is that he exists. He's not a figment of our imagination. He wasn't created by the universe. He wasn't created by a person or a people to satisfy some itch. And he was not created by another God. He is the God who exists, 
the God who's always existed and the God who always exists, and he's the God who does not change. Here's another thing to notice as we look at how he talks about himself here, is that he's personal. He's personal. God is not some impersonal thing. He's not a force, and he's not distant. Notice he says, I. You know, some people talk about God as if he's, he's a force. But a force does not speak, and a force does not say I. If we talk about a force or a law or, or a power or something like that, we call it it. We don't call it I. God here says, I. He's God, and he's the one who is in control of everything. Nothing, else, nothing happens outside of his will. God is personal, and that's why we know that love is really at the center of the universe. That's why we know that love is at the center. Personality is at the center. It's not law. It's not logic. It's not justice. All those things are all part of his character. But really at the center that we see the nature of God's personality, his, his, his personal love, his, his personal, him being a person is his ability to love. And it's wonderful. God is a personal being. And we can relate to him. He exists. And thus we can relate to him. We can trust him. We can call out to him. We can know him. And the sad thing is, is that, is that people get rid of God as he's revealed himself in the Bible. As people rebelled against God in the garden, have continued to rebel against him. Believing in something else. They've rebelled against him, believing in a different religion, making taking crystals or idols or, 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 or different religions, what they, what they change is a personal God for an impersonal force. Maybe they think they're making life easier. Maybe they want to get rid of the idea of God because they don't like the idea of a God who judges, a God who condemns, or the idea of hell, so they get rid of him. But by taking out personhood from the center of the universe, they also strip out love and grace and forgiveness. You can see it in atheist countries, Muslim places where there's no personal God. There's the reduction of love, of compassion, and of forgiveness. And what is replaced with is anxiety, hate, control, and tyranny. There's no doubt that that can happen in our own nation as well. Our own lives, our own families. There are two things that are important when it comes to understanding God. And I think Hebrews 11.6 spells it out nicely. If you want to turn there, there's no slide. But Hebrews 11.6 reminds us of these things. When it comes to understanding God, that we can know he exists and that you can personally relate with him. And that changes everything. To believe that behind everything is personality. Look at Hebrews 11.6. It says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. What does that faith look like? For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. The great I am, the great personality of the universe, the one who shows all the universe is fundamentally personal. We can know him, and we can draw near to him. That's important. I mean, how do you live? Do you live as if the universe is some kind of machine that you have to navigate? Or do you see your relationship with God as that center? God at the center, and you're, and you're relating with him who is at the center. Obedience to God just isn't just about uh, following some sort of impersonal laws. It's about knowing this God. It's about respecting this God, that knowing the one who's created us, the one who takes, yes, personal offense and disobedience, but delights in obedience and faith. It means that he's a God who can be pleased. 
There are so many implications that we, that we derive from this, but it, but it also gives our background in understanding what Jesus meant when he said, before Abraham was, I am. It's going to lead to our second point. second point is about Jesus' identity. Because Jesus identifies himself by God's name. We saw that in verse 58. He takes the divine name of God upon himself. And as he does this, we see the claim is to be God himself. It's no small thing for Jesus to, to do that. Again, you know, we talked about a minute ago, that's blasphemy. Not only what is it, was it a sin, it was an actual crime, a capital offense, and the people could be killed by a mob without much repercussion of it. That's why the, the people take up stones. And notice what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't argue with them. He doesn't say, hang on, guys. You're not understanding me right. I never said I'm God. You misunderstand. You look at John chapter 10, verse 30. The same thing happens there. He doesn't argue. He doesn't debate. You know why? Because he is making the claim, and they do understand rightly. We see evidence after evidence of Jesus displaying the truth of who he is. In his baptism, God says, this is my son. Jesus forgives sins, something that only God can do. Jesus calms the sea. He performs miracles. He transfigures, and he shows his glory. He raises Lazarus from the dead. Just reading through the New Testament, uh, the Gospels, just, just they expand our mind to say, who was this man? We realize he wasn't just a man. It was God who's come in the flesh. Jesus' self-affirmation shows that he knows he was God. It isn't something the church made up. It wasn't something that Jesus made up for himself. He, he claimed to be God throughout the course of his life, and everything about his life speaks to it, and he displays it by power. And if that is true, doesn't that affect the way that we respond to him? Jesus claimed to be God, and so that is either true or it isn't. If it's true, that affects our lives, and if it is not true, then we don't owe him anything. We we can't just accept him as a good moral teacher. He's much more than that. I'm reminded of what C.S. Lewis said in his Lord Liar Lunatic argument. I'm going to read that here just as a reminder to us. Maybe you've read this before about Jesus' claim to be God. C.S. Lewis said, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. They say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Lewis says, that's the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said that sort of thing that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on level of the man who says he's a poached egg, or he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems obvious that he is neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange and terrifyingly, how t how, or terrifyingly or unlikely it may seem, I have come to accept the view that he is God. You see, Jesus didn't leave it as an option to take his life, his commands, his work as mere guidance. He didn't leave himself open to be disregarded. We respond to Jesus as we respond to God himself. I mean, some of us treat Jesus like he's a good buddy, I mean, yes, he does say that he is a friend to us, but he's much more. He is our Lord God. 
That's why I thought it was important to look at this passage before we look at any of the other I am statements. And that's why, because of all the other I am statements we look at, implicit in every one of them is his declaration, I am God. You know, that's why the book of John uses this over and over and over again. I think there's, um, there's, well, there's seven I am statements and then two more, this one and one more we'll look at Good Friday if you join us, um, of where he uses this word, I am, in a powerful way. We can see the I am statements of Jesus, you know, showing he's more than just a man. He is God who has come to fulfill, uh, you know, to fulfill God's own word and to be Lord God over your life. He says in John 6, I'm the bread of life. He says in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. He says in John 10, I am the door. He says in John 10, I am the good shepherd. He says in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. He says in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he says in John 15, I am the vine. His whole life, his miracles, his I am statements speak to his being God and his plan to redeem and save a people as God. God came to redeem people himself. God is Savior. These statements show who he is. They show he's the God who provides. He's the God that we need. He's our spiritual foundation. And in that, he is God's answer to our biggest needs. And that leads to our third point, and that's the point of our identity, our own identity. Because our truest identity is found in Jesus. In a day and age where personal identity seems to matter so much, uh, there is a question that matters more. And that's the identity of Jesus. Who is he and what am I going to do about it? If you try to find personal meaning in yourself, in your life, you end up with nothing. It's, you're not enough to meet your own needs. You're not enough to give yourself an identity. Identity comes from outside. How much of our self-destructive sin comes because we're trying to create an identity for ourselves instead of taking the one that God has provided for us and receiving it with contentment and with thanksgiving? We find it identity in God himself. And that's the reason why God sent Jesus Christ to find our identity in his identity. Knowing who he is impacts us. Believing in Jesus Christ should shape us. And so let's look at some verses that, that show the identity that we find in Jesus. We can look first at John 1.12. And the identity is a child of God. Forgiven, accepted, and brought into God's family. This is amazing. John 1.12. But to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Accepting Christ, become, you become a child of God. Or 2 Corinthians 5.17, we learn to find a new identity in our new creation as Jesus Christ. You're not stuck in old sin. You're not stuck with an old identity. You're a new creation. And do you understand yourself that way? Look at 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Or Romans 6.8, it says that when we become a Christian, we find a new identity. What's that identity? Dead to sin, alive to God in Christ Jesus. You're not a slave to sin. You don't need to be stuck there. You're free in Christ. That's part of your identity in Christ. If we have died with Christ, Romans 6, 8 says, we believe we will also live with him. Or look at Galatians 2.20. Galatians 2.20 show that you are loved if you are in Christ, you are loved by Jesus Christ himself. Uh, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
I'm redeemed. I've been purchased. I'm loved. We'll look at Ephesians 2.10. This reminds us of a key part of our identity as Christians is that we are a workmanship of God. I mean, we're brought back to the purposes that God created us for. You know, part of our, our calling is God's workmanship is we're called to obedience. We're called to faith and doing those works that God has for us. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. Or look at 1 Corinthians 12.27. 1 Corinthians 12.27 says that we become part of a new body, part of the church, part of the people of God. And, and is that going to shape our self-concepts? You bet it is. We're not an isolated people. We're people who are connected with one another. And, and as a result, we're called to reach out to others. We're called to, to be friends, even as we're called to receive care from others. I was asking somebody this week, you know, what, what is it that makes a friend? What makes it a friend in the church? And this person uh, said to me, they said, you know, it's somebody who tries. Somebody tries to reach out. Somebody who tries to come and care because they see they're part of a, a connection in Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 27, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. See, this is identity that we receive through faith in Jesus Christ. That's because when we believe in him, what is his becomes ours. We're brought into what he's accomplished. You know, how did, you know, how are we made a part of this? Because he purchased his, our salvation for us through his death on the cross. You realize in order to give us this identity, what did Jesus have to do? He had to set aside all the privileges of his own identity. Eternal God, worshipped in, in, in heaven forever and ever, you know, that he'd walk down the streets of gold and all the angels would bow before him and praise him. And he sets that aside, the recognition of that, to come into this world, to become flesh, and to die for us. To be crucified on a cross as payment. You know, what is it that causes our own anxieties? What bothers our conscience? What is it that leads us to do sinful things we thought we would never do? Or what is it that leads us to do things that are way below the way that we'd like to live? You know, what is it that leads us to be selfish and loving and greedy? You know, isn't sin at the root of that? Isn't the fall at the root of this? That we're distant from God because of rebellion. We're distant from God because of sin. And as a result, we've forgotten who we are, who we're supposed to be, and what we're supposed to do. And when Jesus Christ died on that cross to pay the penalty of sin, he did it to restore us to God, to get, make us a new creation, help us into that new identity. But you have to believe. You surrender yourself to Christ. So saying, I will be this, God. I don't care what you say. You say, no, God. You know, I know I am what you say. I'm, I, you, you've, God, you've said I'm a sinner. I received that. But you also say that I'm loved in Christ. I receive that as well. You also say I can be forgiven. I receive that. I set aside the sin. I set aside the rebellion. And I receive him as my life and my identity. Would you receive him as your Lord and Savior? Would you believe in him and know him in this way? And more than that, would you invite others to know him? I, I, so many... You know, so much of our world is living in an identity crisis. Would you invite others to be, to, to, to know him and to find a new identity in Jesus Christ? 
Inside of your bulletin, this week we added something we added last week. Might have a different form, but it's called a bring a friend. Um, focus, as we look over the next few months, you know, there's a big evangelistic outreach, which we're a part of, with the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. And we're praying that, that God would use this time to bring people to faith in Christ. And why? To find the identity that God gives them of loved, of, of adopted as part of his family, is, is redeemed. And so this is a time to pray and a time to invite. And so that is in there. So you could be prayerful about the people in your circles. Maybe invite them to go to that event. If you can't go to that event, you invite them to come here. But you're praying day to day, and then you're looking for those opportunities to invite. You know, there's an opportunity to put 12 names on there. You know, take that. Put it in your Bible. Be praying through it on a daily basis. And just see what the Lord does over the next few months. You know, is there a friend that you bring to hear this, hear the good news of how Jesus Christ died to bring a new identity as a child of God? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we uh, may not always know how we fit into this world. Father, we may not always know uh, the, the, the responsibilities that we have. Father, we may struggle with some of the uh, ways that things that we're called to in this life. Father, it just leads us into many sins. But you sent Jesus, the great I am, the one who knew who he was, who offered himself to us. Father, so that we can find our identity in him. Thank you, Father, for that. And help us to do that by faith. Help us to obey him by faith. Help us to glorify you in these things. In the great name of Jesus Christ, the great I am, amen. Well, today is the day we come to 